Uh, we're continuing today in our teaching series that we've called Asking for a Friend. And in the series, if you've been with us, we've just been considering together some of the significant questions that our friends might be asking about God and spirituality and faith. And, and those questions can often be questions that we ourselves are asking. So through this series, we've been reflecting on a number of questions. And let me just mention additionally, uh, if we haven't addressed a question that you are wondering about, I wanna let you know about a few resources. For one, I invite you to go over to our resource center right across Ricardo. There are some books there that deal with questions we've been reflecting on. Secondly, I invite you to go to our website, thesouthviewchurch.com. And, and when you go there, additionally, you can watch or listen to other sermons from a sermon series called I've Been Wondering, in which we reflected on other questions, like why doesn't God intervene more in the world? How could Jesus be the only way to God? How do I discern God's will for my life? If, if those teachings would be of help, invite you to go there. And then just a third resource I want you to know about is, as has been mentioned already, our Alpha Ministry. Again, it begins on Thursday, February 6th. And I bring it up because Alpha, again, is a great opportunity to discuss and reflect on some of these great questions about God, about faith, about life with Christ. Like, who is Jesus? How can I be sure of my faith? I mean, why and how do I read and understand this book, the Bible? And really, if you haven't been part of Alpha before, I encourage you to go, bring a friend. It's a great time reflecting on these questions together. So a few resources for you, but today, uh, we're asking a different question. I mean, during this past year in our church office, we had an interesting little challenge that came up while I was out of town. Uh, our staff received an email and text request from me asking them to wire me money uh, to a certain address. And the request was for $10,000 or whatever they could spare. And thankfully we caught it, had to send out a notice immediately to all our staff saying, this message you got asking for money, it used Clyde's name, but it wasn't from Clyde. Okay, so we laughed about it, just how ridiculous it was. But then it kept happening every few weeks, multiple requests from me saying, send me money. And personally, got a bit frustrated, aggravated, that my name kept being misused and just wanted to say, just because somebody uses my name doesn't mean it's actually me. But if you want to send me money, go ahead. <laughs> just threw it in. But there's actually a verse in the book of Exodus that talks about a similar dynamic on a far, far more profound level. This is from Exodus chapter 20, and it says this. And as you hear it, remember, friends, this is a word of God. In verse seven, the Lord said, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, contrary to what we might presume, uh, taking the Lord's name in vain does not primarily mean swearing or cursing using God or Christ's name. Rather, it primarily means attributing to God actions or teachings or behavior that are not of God. It's misusing God's name. 
which if you think about it, happens so often in our day, doesn't it? I mean, people attributing to God actions, teachings, behavior that is not of God. Even Christian leaders, and too often Christian political leaders, just kind of so casually saying, oh, this, this is an act that God supports, or, or God did that. I mean, that is taking the Lord's name in vain. It's attributing to God what is not of God. That make sense? And all of that ties into the focus of our teaching today. Because if you glance at the international news of our day, you know that you will hear no shortage of reports about wars or violent acts across the globe. And why does it seem that so many wars and violent acts, even in our day, seem to come back to or be attributed to God? Muslims killing Hindus, Sunnis killing Shias, Jewish Israelis against Palestinians, Catholics, Protestants, battling to one degree or another over the centuries in Europe or Africa, South America. And, and those and other religious groups often claiming that they are taking steps of violence or war because God prompted or God wills it. And those claims have led many of those who are being called the new atheists to hope for the solution that Professor Richard Dawkins recommends in his book, The God Delusion. I mean, you might know Dawkins was an evolutionary biologist at Oxford University, and he wrote this in his book. If this book works as intended, religious leaders who open it will be atheists when they put it down. Because to Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, Daniel Dennett, other atheists, the problem is God. Or more accurately, those who believe in God. Because in Dawkins' estimation, believers in God lead the way in violence and wars. And they do so in part, their argument goes, because of the violence of the God they believe in. As shown, for example, that they would say, in some of the texts in the Old Testament. Now, I wish we could kind of just go through all of those biblical texts here together today and consider what they actually were or were not saying, but in the limits of our time here today, we're gonna to focus on a broader question. And the question is this. I mean, Sam Harris argues in his book entitled The End of Faith, the most potent source of human conflict, past, present, and future, is religion. We need to awaken from the nightmare of religious belief in order to save our planet. And that's why I think our friends, perhaps we, might be asking, what about that? I mean, what about God and religion and violence? I mean, is religion the source of most violence? Or is it a solution in response to the human heart? So I want to consider that broad question together today. And, and let me mention this. Even if this is not a question that you yourself are asking or wondering about, it helps for each one of us, friends, to understand how we might reply to that question if it's brought up in conversations. And here's the thing. 
you don't have to go back very far to find terribly violent acts done in the name of God, do we? I mean, Christians included. There are some glaring historical examples of Christian violence that we know in history. I mean, just to be aware, what would be brought up? Let's just scroll back in history and consider a few examples that are often brought up when this argument is brought forward. Um, for example, the Thirty Years' War. Maybe you don't know about it, but it, that was a war in the early 1600s, and it was largely a battle between Roman Catholics and Protestants in Central Europe. And during those 30 years, about 15 to 20% of Europe's population was killed by war or famine or devastation because of these battling Christians. You know, the thing is, we might read today of Islamic Sunnis and Shias battling, killing each other, and you might hear that and wonder, they're all Muslims. Why can't they get along? Why do they battle and fight each other like that? Well, here's the thing. We saw the same kind of thing in the Thirty Years' War between Catholics and Protestants. And we've seen in more recent history, sadly, a similar thing in Northern Ireland. Or consider the Spanish Inquisition. I mean, that was initiated in the late 15th century after the Catholic Church regained control of Spain. I mean, this here is that's a woodcut depicting the Inquisition. And, and Spain decreed that all of its people had to either convert to Christianity or leave the country. And so the Inquisition was the means to test if those conversions of Jews and Muslims were authentic. And the way that they tested their faith was typically by torturing them. And over the time of the Inquisition, somewhere around 50,000 individuals were brought before this religious tribunal. And the thing is, the Inquisition stands out, though, because it just so grossly abandoned the guidance and calling of Jesus. I mean, for example, listen to how Jesus lived, what he said. This is from the Gospel of Mark. In, in Mark chapter 2, we read this of Jesus. Mark chapter 2, verse 15. And as Jesus reclined at a table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw it, he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but who? Sinners. So we read that, and he asks, how do you move from that Jesus to torturing others as a way of testing their faith? I mean, you can hardly drift farther from what Jesus actually taught, nor be attributing to God something that God would more readily just condemn. Or, or let's go back further. You go back a bit further in history and you come to perhaps the most tragic, prominent example of church-sanctioned violence, the Crusades. And just to remind you, in case you forgot your 12th, 13th century history, the Crusades took place from about 19, or rather 1095 to 1291. It was about a 200-year period. And the exact causes and motivations of the Crusades are debated among historians still. But just to give you a quick summary of it, the setting of the Crusades was the battle of Christian Europe with Islam, which was 
beginning to spread across the Middle East. And so the Christian Byzantine Empire in the East, which was really just kind of the Eastern Roman Empire, they asked for help from Western Europe in keeping Jerusalem and Palestine, the biblical promised land, free from the Muslim rule of the Seljuk Turks. So here's a map just to give you a picture of where that was taking place here. Now, some scholars argue that the first crusade was just largely an attempt to save Christians who were being brutalized by the Turks. So Pope Urban II called on Christians to go to Jerusalem and fight for Jesus. And really, not unlike some present-day Islamic declarations, the Pope declared that those who fought in these crusades would be spared from purgatory. So over the next four years, the crusaders just battled their way towards Jerusalem. And once there, there are about 12,000 crusaders left by then. They marched around the walled city of Jerusalem, battled its defenders, then entered the city on July 15th, 1099. And what followed was a bloodbath against the Turks and the Jews. You know, you know how on this continent, the date of September 11, 2001 is a date of infamy, and, and likely will be for centuries, I would imagine, on that day when in the name of Allah, over 3,000 people were killed. But understand, in the Islamic East, July 15, 1099 is viewed similarly as their people were slaughtered by crusading soldiers who had the cross of Jesus on their chest. And those crusades continued for almost 200 years, though in decreasing effectiveness in gaining control of the Holy Lands. And just all those brief examples are terribly, a terribly sad part of our history as a church of Jesus Christ. And that's what led Austin Klein, an atheist, to write this. It's ironic that a religion which proclaims absolute love as its basis should spawn so much unmitigated hatred and violence. And we should say, he's right. And it's not just ironic, it is tragic. And when we have friends who bring these things up, Really, we need to completely agree how horrible these actions were. And we really need to point out as well how completely contrary those actions were to the teachings of Jesus. And in part, that's what makes the Crusades stand out so much in history because although they used Jesus' name, they were acting antithetically to his life and guidance. I mean, how could you claim to follow Jesus the one who allowed himself to be taken to the cross and there on the cross said, Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. How could you follow Jesus and justify those actions? I mean, there is no justification. But another point we should bring up in those conversations is there's also never a shortage of counterfeits of the message of Christ. There's never a shortage. So the question again is, 
Okay, so is the solution to war and violence, as Dawkins and Harris suggest, to do away with the Christian faith, to do away with belief in God? We ask the question, would dissolving all religion, would that allow peace to finally come? Okay, so as we reflect, try to deal with that question, we, I will, should also note this. We, we need to really first note a difficulty in Dawkins' logic. I mean, in his book, for example, Dawkins rightly decries the actions of a man named Paul Hill. I mean, if you remember that name, it was in 2003, Hill killed Dr. John Britton outside of Dr. Britton's abortion clinic in Florida. And Hill claimed that he was led by God to murder Dr. Britton. That led Dawkins to write this. Paul Hill caused real, deep, lasting suffering to beings with nervous systems capable of suffering. Dr. Hill, Dawkins suggests, did no such thing. And then Dawkins adds, all suffering is deplorable. And Dawkins' part, point in part is, it is wrong to cause suffering. And to that, we, we completely agree. And it, completely agree with Dawkins' condemnation of Paul Hill's actions. But, but consider this. Dawkins' comments, they, as one who says, I don't believe there's a God, there's no objective standard, Dawkins' comments beg the question, on what basis then does Dawkins determine that causing suffering is deplorable? Because Using Dawkins' perspective, there's no God. We're just kind of a collection of atoms. Com compared, let's say if a moose in the woods charged and half-killed a wolf, leaving the wolf in agony as it died, would any other moose think that is deplorable? No, it's just, it's just survival of the fittest. So a theist... A theist is one who believes in God. A theist can say what Hill did was deplorable because God says human life is sacred and his actions went against what God says is good. But an atheist has no basis for such a judgment. In fact, the renowned atheist Friedrich Nietzsche put it this way, if God is dead, any and all morality of love and human rights is baseless. And, and that's true. I mean, our declarations that the religious violence and wars of the world are deplorable, it's well-founded based on the reality of an objective standard of what is or is not deplorable. And that standard for us is God and his guidance that's been given to us. Or to put it in another way, the fact that we label the terrible violence in the world as deplorable Friends, that's a clue to us that we are more than mere products of nature. In fact, the historian John Somerville put it this way. It is the Christian biblical standard of justice that established the standard in the West for evaluating and identifying injustices. So doing away with Christianity and its standards would leave us with no basis for the criticism of unjust acts of war and violence. But even so, 
you still will hear the call in our day for eradicating religious faith. And at times it comes from surprising sources. I mean, consider for example, John Lennon's beautiful song, Imagine. Listen to the lyrics of that song. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine there's no countries, it isn't hard to do, nothing to kill or die for, and no religion too. Imagine all the people, finally, living life in peace. In other words, get rid of religious faith and a life of peace will finally come. Now, Lenin's longings for peace, is, it's such an admirable, a, a good desire. And, and we too should long for, pray for peace. But we ask the question, so is the solution then, no heaven, no hell, no religion, is that the solution? Well, the thing is, we can test that theory by considering countries that have sought to eradicate religious faith. I mean, because if this no religion theory is accurate, then a society without Christianity or religious faith would be the most peaceful, just nation, right? According to that argument. But we've seen otherwise. In fact, over the past century, we witnessed two totalitarian states in particular that, that sought to eradicate religious faith and were founded on the tenets of Karl Marx, who declared religion is merely the opiate of the people. And those two totalitarian states were the Soviet Union and Communist China. So we asked the question, so were those religion-free nations ones of peace, of justice? Consider the Soviet Union. I mean, under Joseph Stalin, there were about 54,000 churches that existed in the Soviet Union when Stalin came to power. There were only about 300 churches left when he finished his rule. So what was the result? Peace? Hardly. It was five to 10 million of his own people being put to death under Stalin. Or, or think about the communist China. Chairman Mao Zedong led about 30 to 70 million people to be put to death or they died because of a lack of food because they believed that people were of no value. So really, I'd suggest, as I think scripture does, that the primary source of violence, friends, it's not religious faith. The problem is the human heart. In fact, this is what the prophet Jeremiah said about that. Listen to Jeremiah's words. This is from Jeremiah 17.9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Our human hearts are prone to violence, aren't they? I mean, our, our typical first reaction in situations is to desire retribution, violence. I have empirical tr proof of this. Driving down Deerfoot. You know where I'm going with this. You're cut off by another driver. Is your first impulse, peace be with you. Yeah, I didn't think so. And, and really, look at how we're entertained in our day. UFC, mixed martial arts. I mean, think of our video games. Again, they may or may not be wrong in themselves, but they do indicate something 
to us. Our human tendency is to want to fight back, to get even. So what do we do? <laughs> Listen to Jesus. This is what Jesus expressed. This is in the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says this in verse 9. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons, the daughters of God. Look down at verse 43. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I say to you, who are you to love? Your enemies. Who are you to pray for? Those who persecute you. And, and you read that and you ask the question, okay, so is this, is what Jesus is suggesting here, is this just kind of this inactive, milquetoast, passive kind of living? Hardly. Complete opposite, in fact. In fact, Tim Keller points to Dietrich Bonhoeffer as one of just the many examples of authentically living in this way of Christ. Because when Adolf Hitler came to power, Bonhoeffer was actually leading two German-speaking churches in London. He had been in New York previously as well. And, and with what he saw happening in his homeland of Germany under Hitler's rule, Bonhoeffer, greatly endangering himself, returned to Germany to head up an illegal seminary of the confessing church. And that was the church that refused to sign or give an oath of allegiance to the Nazis. And Bonhoeffer was eventually arrested and hanged for his opposition. Before his death, though, he wrote in his book that we call now The Cost of Discipleship. It is not a religious act that makes a Christian, but participation in the sufferings of God in the secular life. That is transformation in Christ. Not in the first place thinking about one's own needs, problems, sins, and fears, but allowing oneself to be caught up into the way of Jesus. And through him, through Christ, people have become greater than through all the joys of the world. And Keller goes on to note, when people or groups live by injustice or violence, regardless of whose name they invoke to justify their actions, they do not reflect the true spirit of the one who himself died as a victim of injustice and who still called for the forgiveness of his enemies. We know this. Followers of Christ have often failed to live in line with the teaching of Jesus. And authentic Christianity looks radically different than those failings. It, it looks like, actually, authentic Christianity looks like those followers of Jesus, like William Wilberforce, John Woolman, who with really nothing to gain personally and a great deal to lose, sought to bring down slavery as abolitionists. Authentic Christianity looks like those who founded hospitals and schools across Europe and North America as an expression of the value and sanctity of the human person and life by the God of creation. Because here's the thing, the, the Bible doesn't just give us a list of moral rules to live by. Transformation in our lives doesn't come just in adopting some new moral code. The Bible, Christ rather, offers a relationship with God through him through the one who can change our hearts to actually reflect him through our union with him and the work of his Holy Spirit within us. You know, the Apostle John expressed it this way in his first epistle. This is in 1 John 4 and verse 12. John wrote this. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in. He takes up residence in us, and his love 
is perfected in us. Think about this. We know people question God's presence. We know people long to see God in some kind of way. And friends, listen to God's word. It's when we love one another that his love and presence are expressed perfectly, fully, and completely. I mean, part of the tragedy of the church in history losing its way in war and violence is that it lost something of its declarative power in exemplifying the presence and love of God. So again, we ask, so how do we love in that kind of way? I mean, when Jeremiah says, our hearts are naturally inclined so differently. Listen to what John said. This is in verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us his spirit. Friends, know this. This kind of love, it can only be a work of the spirit, the Holy Spirit within us prompting us, empowering us to live like Jesus in ways that the world might look on and say, that doesn't make sense living that way. It's countercultural. You might remember the story of the West Nichols Mine School. It was actually an Amish school in Pennsylvania in the Amish community of West Nichols. And on October 2nd, 2006, a gunman, Charles Roberts, who was not Amish, took hostages and eventually shot 10 girls, ages six to 13, killing five, before committing suicide himself in the schoolhouse. You know, cannot even imagine the grief that those parents and that community must have felt, or how much their impulse could have understandably been retribution, an eye for an eye. You know, the widow of the killer, Marie Roberts, and her children lived right in that area, in that Amish area. And how easily and naturally would it have been for the Amish community to ostracize the Roberts family. But instead, that Amish community reached out to this widow and her children in love. They visited Mrs. Roberts and her family and comforted them. They set up a charitable fund for her, all because, they told her, of the love of Christ. In fact, at Charles Roberts' funeral, there were about 70 people present. Over half of them were those from the Amish community, including the families of those who were killed in Roberts' deadly rampage. And that, that's an image of 1 John 4. Hear verse 12 again. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. I mean, we believe that peace and transformation can come, but, but not just through an improved set of laws or kind of the removal of religious belief, but rather through relationship with the living God whose Holy Spirit comes within those who turn in faith to Jesus. So in light of that, I ask each one of us, what will your choice be? How will you live, even this week? So fitting that as we reflect on even some of the tragedies in the history of the body of Christ, and even in that acknowledge 
it's not just believers in history, it's us. <laughs> Even this week, right? We've fallen short. How fitting then that we come to the table and remember the wonder of the reality that the body of Christ was broken for you. And, and likewise, we take the cup together and pass it and remember his blood poured out for us. And we pray to the God of creation that God, through your spirit, the spirit of Christ, would you feed us, would you nurture us as we take this bread and cup. And I invite you to do so if your heart is for Jesus today. And it seems fitting before we come to the table, even in light of what we've been reflecting on, that we as a community of faith acknowledge, Father, we've fallen short, even this week. So can we pray a prayer of confession together before we come to the table? Will you join me and let's collectively express this to our God. Let's pray together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name, amen, amen. And I remind you, friends, as well, even as we confess that, remember what John also said in his epistle? If we confess our sins, our God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen? Let me pray, and then we'll receive in the table. So, Father, as we're gathered here in the Mosaic, we thank you for your presence with us. And, Lord, we come to you confessing the tragedy of how we live at times, thanking you for the wonder of your forgiveness and grace and praying by your spirit, you would prompt us, mold us. Even as we receive from this table, Father, we pray by your grace, would you feed us spiritually, nurture us, empower us through it, we pray. For we come in the name of Christ in faith. And again, all God's people say, amen. amen. Let's come to him.